exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, the Netherlands' right-wing coalition government is pushing to sharply restrict the sale of marijuana in coffee shops and to prohibit the sale of drugs to non-residents, according to the New York Times. If the measures survive a court challenge in the opposition of local officials, the first phase would begin May 1st. Strictly speaking, the sale of marijuana is not legal, but a long-standing policy of tolerance means that licensed coffee shops operators are not prosecuted for selling marijuana. That's as long as they deal in limited quantities and keep hard drugs and minors out. The Dutch are also allowed to cultivate up to five marijuana plants, each for their personal use. In national news today, Mitt Romney is aiming for a triple primary victory as voters in Wisconsin, Maryland, and Washington, D.C. pick a Republican presidential candidate, according to the BBC. The former Massachusetts governor is hoping to knock Maine rival Rick Santorum out of the race so he can sew up his party's nomination. Opinion polls suggest Mr. Romney is heading, or excuse me, is leading in Wisconsin and Maryland. In Michigan news today, a battle over gay and lesbian legal protections is heating up, according to Michigan Radio. Sixty-five local elected officials have signed a letter supporting a bill that would add sexual orientations to the state Civil Rights Act. Eighteen cities in Michigan have local ordinances against discrimination against gays and lesbians. On the show tonight, we will be uh, airing an interview with a cast member from Les Mis. Uh, that show is going on at the Wharton Center all week long. Wonderful show, one of my personal favorites. Also, tonight we'll be talking with speakers um, that uh, spoke at TEDxMSU that happened last weekend, as well as TEDx Lansing. TEDx Lansing is happening next Friday. And on the phone is Alison Gass. She's the curator of the contemporary art at the Broad Art Museum, um, which will be opening up shortly. And she'll be speaking at the TEDx Lansing event next Friday. Welcome to the show, Allison. Hi, I'm happy to talk to you. So tell me a little bit about your presentation you'll be giving uh, titled Art in Strange Places, New Art Practices in East Lansing and Beyond. Sure. Well, I'm really excited about it. You know, I'm just very new to East Lansing. I've been here about two months. I moved here from San Francisco um, to become the curator at the Broad Art Museum, which, as you said, is going to open up in the fall um, on the campus of MSU. And I'm sort of interested in this idea of places. If any of you have seen the museum, it's a very contemporary architectural building, very different from the things around it on the campus of MSU and around East Lansing and in Lansing. And it's caused already a lot of conversation. And one of the things we're really committed to is sort of opening the dialogue about what contemporary art is and what it can be and the kind of messages it can send. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about kind of finding art in unexpected places and how that can sort of change your perception of the world. And and it's going to be particularly directed at a big project that I'm starting um, up at MSU at the Broad, which we're calling the Land Grant, where we've invited some artists and, and designers who are working around the topic of agriculture to come and do projects to do with sustainability and food 
and this kind of interest in linking contemporary art practices that are happening around the world to practices and, and intellectual pursuits and social agendas that are really prevalent at MSU, given its history of place, its history as a land-grant institute. So, so at TEDx, I'm going to talk a lot about sort of my commitment to art as a social instigator, kind of a, a way of, of making a civic proclamation. You know, artists are interested in globalization. Artists are interested in sustainability, just the same as kind of thinkers in the non-art world are. So that's, that's kind of what I'm going to be talking about, this kind of social impact of finding art in unexpected ways and, and covering unexpected topics. Well, th- this land-grant thing seems interesting. I, I was reading an article today, and I started reading through it a little longer. I, I think it was published by the New York Times talking yep. about young uh, young curators. Um, and and then there was mention of this land-grant thing, and I was like, I don't know what this is talking yeah. about. I started <laughs> skimming through. I was like, this can't be. This can't be talking about MSU. You know, talking about... Um, people talking about sustainable practices and gardening and farming right. and trying to create that with modern art. So how does that project work? Tell me a little bit more about this project. Well, it's super exciting. The first two artists that I've invited to work with are these two artists. One is from San Francisco, where I've just come from, and the other is, is based in L.A., but they both work around the world. And they're basically doing something called social practice, which is kind of redefining the notion of what an art practice is. It's not a thing you look at on the wall, but it's kind of like a performance art, but again with this social agenda. So, for example, Fritz Haig, who's one of the artists I'm bringing in, um, has done this project called The Edible Estates, where he kind of, conv- a long time ago, he convinced um, a couple that lived in a very suburban, kind of upscale neighborhood, actually in Kansas, to give them his front, their front lawn, to give him their front lawn to turn it into a vegetable garden, which sounds like a really simple thing, but kind of in this community, the state of a beautifully manicured front lawn was sort of a social status symbol, and the community really rejected this idea of ripping it up and turning it into um, turning it into a vegetable garden. And that was simply his practice in kind of making the point that you have this private land, you can use it sustainably rather than using it in any way um, that kind of goes against betterment. So the other artist I'm working with, Amy Franceschini, has done a really similar thing. She took the whole plaza of City Hall in San Francisco and turned it into a community garden. And it doesn't really sound like an art practice, but it actually really is. These are artists who are interested in making things in doing things that you kind of do every day or you might see every day outside of the context of art, but they're calling it art because it's their social agenda. It's their way of making something. So on um, April 21st, after TEDx, the Broad is going to do this big kickoff event where we are going to occupy the vacant Barnes & Noble space that is on Grand Hmm. River Ave, and we've invited these two artists. We've invited these kind of sort of visionary farmers, this young woman from this group called the Greenhorns, um, and some professors from MSU from the Ag School who are working around these topics in non-art events, and they're going to kind of do a town hall discussion and talk about what's happening in agriculture in art and what's happening in agriculture not in the art world and what would this kind of land-grant residency project at the Broad look like. And then we're going to turn the whole Barnes & Nobles into like a big farmer's market and we're (laughs) going to have some food and drink and and um, some bands will play. So it's kind of like our kickoff to the land grant. So I'll be talking about kind of the ideas around bringing together artists and thinkers from other fields and that there really aren't these limits to the places you find art and there really aren't these limits to what art objects are, if that makes sense to you. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like a really excellent project. Cool. So you we're talking about place, you're talking about the 
place and art. And you worked at art museums in New York and San Francisco, and now you're working here in East Lansing. Right. So New York and San Francisco, big hubs for art and creativity.、Mm-hmm. So I'm curious now, being in East Lansing, how much do you think a city where a museum, an art museum, is housed, impacts the impact and quality of that art museum? I mean, I think that our plan is to make really a world-class art museum in East Lansing, and and that's a model that a lot of contemporary art museums have kind of taken up of going to a place that maybe isn't as known as a contemporary art hub, but making a very important museum there, one that's both focused locally and really focused globally. So while we're doing things like this project. Like the land grant, which is really born of this place in some ways, it's linked very much to the kinds of global activities that people are doing. So I, I'm really hoping that what we're going to do is just kind of bring to the fore the conversation of what's happening in the contemporary art world and the way that it just reflects the things that are happening in the world in general. I think that we're very conscious of the fact that in some ways a lot of the things we'll be bringing there here might be things people haven't seen before, and we're really going to want to invite people to come in and explore and talk and think.、Um, And just look at this new stuff. Wow! So, can you tell me a little bit about Elide and Edith Broad and their connection to art, and why you know they wanted to donate this money to to start the Broad Art Museum here at, on MSU's campus? Sure. The Broads are really some of the most important collectors and supporters of the arts, and and actually of, of all kinds of other、um, agendas as well. But they're in, in terms of the art world, they really have this amazing world class collection. You know, Elide Broad went to MSU, and I think、um, it's just an incredibly important place in his own history.、And And I think he wants to do two things. I think he wants to—I mean, I can't speculate about what he wants, but certainly what part of the mission is is that making the whole world kind of focus on the fact that MSU is this amazing international university, and of course it should have this amazing international contemporary art museum. And at the same time, making sure that the kind of breadth of students here who are thinking and doing so many things again have access. That as if they were in any other place that had a thriving contemporary art center. So it's, it's a really exciting thing to do.、Mm-hmm. So the museum, the the Broad Art Museum, was supposed to open on on April 21st. Would you say is now that that kickoff for that,、mm-hmm, exactly. that land grant project? But 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 now、uh, the opening of Broad Art Museum has been pushed back. I think to construction issues. Exactly.、Um, can you talk a little bit about、um, if there's any other issues regarding why it was pushed back, and when can we expect it to open? Well, it, we're so excited to open it and. Actually, Actually, it's construction issues. You know, it's such an amazing and complicated architectural triumph that it takes a lot of time to get it exactly, exactly right. And basically, we got to the point where we were saying, "Look, we want to do best museum practices possible. In order to do that, we have to have the most perfectly constructed museum、um, available." And in a lot of ways, having this bit of time to continue to plan allows us not just to be even more prepared to open in the fall, but also to do projects like the land grant that can exist kind of offsite. We've been talking a lot about this idea of the museum without walls, and that's something we're really committed to. And not having a physical building quite yet gives us a chance to do these kinds of museum projects without walls. So someone said to me today, you know, the Broad Museum is open; it's just the building that's not. Quite open yet, and, and we sort of loved that idea that yes, we are open, and we're doing all kinds of interesting programming. The land grant project is one of them, and we'll do some other things as we go through the summer, and then we'll open with the building in the fall with a series of exciting、um, inaugural exhibitions, including the land grant Amy Franceschini project that'll probably be offsite as well. 
Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, I, I also understand that when you knew that, that this construction and the opening would be pushed back a bit, there's been a lot of hype around this idea of the virtual museum. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the virtual Broad Art Museum is an amazing project that our director, Michael Rush, started right when he began um, about a year and a half ago. And he worked with two artists and programmers to design Basically, a, literally what that what it is is a virtual Broad Art Museum, and you can link to it through the Broad website. And when you get on there, it's kind of um, it's it's a virtual world where you sort of see the building. You can kind of physically move through the spaces. So if you can't actually go into the building right now, you can really get a sense of what it looks like to be in there by looking at this virtual model. And then you have the ability to kind of play curator a little bit and and pull images from around the digital world and kind of curate your own shows and explore the space and and use the space in different ways. Well, excellent. Well, on the phone is Alison Gash. She is the curator of contemporary art at the Broad Art Museum, and she will be speaking at TEDx Lansing next Friday. The topic of her presentation is called uh, Art in Strange Places, New Art Practices in East Lansing and Beyond. Alison Gash, thank you so much for calling in tonight, and best of luck for your presentation at TEDx Lansing. Thanks so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. TEDx MSU was last weekend on MSU's campus. The theme was global and local. And Jeff George is on the phone to talk about the pre- presentation that he gave at the event. Welcome to the show, Jeff George. Thanks for having me, Emily. So as I said, the theme um, of TEDxMSU is global and local. And I understand during your presentation, you mentioned the term glocal. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means, being a glocal citizen? Absolutely. So it was a concept that I wanted to explore with the audience and something that I've identified with not just through my life, but because of others that I have met through my life to this point. And the, the concept was all around the fact that if you look at how much our modes of communication have evolved over time, right? We're consuming more information than we ever have before and sharing the most in the shortest amount of times as we ever have. Same things goes with uh, um, our modes of transport and how human beings get about the planet. We now go farther distances in shorter amounts of time than we ever have before. The concept of global citizens came from the fact that we now are much more than local citizens interfacing with our community. We're well beyond global citizens who hop on a plane and go connect with folks in other countries. We're global. We can do things right from home that have an impact in faraway places, just like we can go 
uh, in far remote corners of the world and treat it as though it were in our backyard. Very interesting. So I, I, during your talk, you also focused on five main ways that we can all make an impact. Can you talk about some of those, those five elements? Sure. The, the first point that I explored with the audience was in that um, there, there are certain traits for global citizens, and there are many of them, but obviously, you know, in, in that, the TEDx format is such that you only have 18 minutes to explore the point. We, we brought it down to very succinct uh, four points that I want to share with the audience. So the first one was that local citizens, they tend to seek a new perspective. They seek to be in situations, to meet people, to experience things that change how they see the world and their place in it. And if all of us go and seek that out, chances are we're going to learn something new about us, ourselves, and our future. Uh, the next point that I shared with the group was the fact that local citizens, wherever they go, they find their own tribe. And the concept of tribe can be built around a cultural heritage, but it may also be around a common interest. It could be volunteering for the needy, maybe it's cycling, uh, maybe it's uh, animal rescue, what have you. But the point was that the, one's tribe is out there. So I encourage the, the crowd to go and find them, go connect with them, enrich their lives because they will be enriched in the process. The uh, one before, the, the last uh, couple of points that I made was that they... Local citizens, they, they stoke their own fire, meaning that when things get tough, they might you know, be in a position where they want to take the easy route or just give up. But one of the hallmarks of local citizens is that they actually find the strength within to keep on, whether it's an individual fight for um, you know, getting to the, the degree that they want to attain or to get to the job where they, they want to achieve. But it could be a collective fight. It could be a fight for uh, you know, a clean earth, clean energy, uh, renewable sources, whatever point being is that we are our own best allies, and that is something that I wanted to share with, with the audience that was pretty well received. Um, the last couple of points that I made uh, were around systems thinking, which is another uh, trait of local citizens that, whether deliberately or not, uh, comes across very clearly. And I encourage the audience to learn a little bit more about it, but uh, briefly stated, it's a philosophy of thought or a problem-solving approach that looks at challenges as part of a bigger overarching system. And when you understand the parts and how they interconnect, you can isolate challenges more easily and find solutions that are much faster and get you to where you want to go in a much more efficient way. And then my last, uh, last point with the audience and the last takeaway is that, um, you know, we have all these traits of global citizens and we have so much change happening in the world, but we all share the journey of life together. We all feel life uh, in our own special way. And even though we might have different perspectives in life and different opinions and different values, the fact that we all have this feeling of going through life makes as though we have a, a common bond among all of us. It's like an invisible string that connects all of us. And when we root ourselves in compassion, uh, we see how these differences actually complement us much more than they divide us. And we explore the point of compassion a little bit more in that through compassion, we find more of ourselves inside other people. And because of that, our ability to reach from home to faraway places becomes even greater. And, um, and we just cap it off with the fact that we're all global citizens. We're all catalysts. And it's a really pivotal time in history to leverage this great ability to communicate, to go places, to connect with people, to make a positive impact in the world.
Now, again, for those that may be just tuning in, this is Jeff George on the phone, and he was a presenter at TEDxMSU last weekend. I understand also during your presentation, you kind of weaved through your life and how your life, um, you learn these things along the way. Uh, you were born in Brazil, and I was looking at um, a video this morning from when you spoke at, at TEDx Detroit, and one of the first things you said before your presentation was talking about growing up in Brazil and saying, I am so fortunate to be here today, not just here today, but just alive in general, because where I grew up wasn't the best place in the world. But now you're the founder of um, Global Development Partners, um, and you're this you're a triathlete, and you, you're successful. So can you tell me a little bit some of the turning points in your life that, that got you from Brazil? And I, I'm also curious to know what life was like there to where you are today. Sure. Uh, I'll actually share something that I shared during uh, TEDxMSU in that uh, the way that I, I shared my message with the audience was from both a personal perspective and what I've gleaned from others. And some of those personal perspectives, I actually shared the stories of my life. And one of those goes back to when I was six or seven years old, and my parents took me to the movies. Now, you can probably think to your own life, Emily, you know, when we're kids, we don't know what we have or don't have, who we are or who we're not. We're just kids. And I went to, to see E.T., the extraterrestrial. So, you know, 80s classic. And we go into the theater and we're watching the movie, and there's a scene in the movie where Elliot, uh, one of the main characters in the, in the movie, takes the dirty dishes from the table and places them in the sink. Now, at this point, the camera is panning from the outside of the window into the house, and I see Elliot open up the faucet, water comes out, and steam rises. And Emily, my jaw dropped. Because until then, I had no idea that there was a place in the world where hot water came out of the pipes. <laughs> and I'm thinking, to myself, are you kidding me? There's hot water in the kitchen. I'm sure there's hot water in the bathroom, too. So we left the theater, and I asked my parents, so where does this whole E.T. Elliot thing take place? And they said, well, it's in the United States. And that was it. From that moment on, I knew that I needed to do whatever I could to come to the U.S., and, and so it was a turning point for me. It presented me with this new perspective that I didn't know that there was a place that had certain things that in my life I didn't even know existed. So, you know, uh, it, was, uh, it was certainly a turning point for me. It would be a few years before I could actually come to the U.S., however, uh, partly because during the, you know, the, the mid to late 80s uh, in, the, in Brazil, the economic state of the country was particularly turmoiled. You know, it was during a period in, in the history of the country that we had hyperinflation. I mean, we're talking 100, 200. It got to a point where we had 3,000% inflation in one year. It was, it was unbelievable. So it was very difficult to just make ends meet. And I remember that I was probably, probably young and too young to feel the full effect of that economic challenge. And also I had amazing parents that worked extraordinarily hard to not let anything lack at home. But I was old enough to see the lengths to which they had to go to just keep us fed, to have a place to live and, and be clothed to get out and, and go to school. So it was, um, I feel very fortunate to have had that kind of experience in my life. And, and it's happened in multiple times in Brazil because the economy had oscillated so much. And uh, there were, were times where we were in the lower end of the economic spectrum and there were others where we were doing quite a bit better. Um, but the reason why I take that as, as a real gift is because, one, it gave me a huge appreciation for what we have here in the U.S. and what a quality of life we can have when we work hard, um, you know, make, make the right choices. And, um, and also it gave me a perspective in terms of how to handle big 
problems, big challenges in life, not just for me personally and for my family, but for my clients or the, the universities that we work with in helping or international students who we also help significantly with our international student success system. Um, so I, I find that having that kind of a challenge and that knuckle grinding, as I call it, in certain aspects of life um, actually gave me the ability to, to see perhaps opportunities where if I hadn't gone through those experiences, I may not have been able to spot. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I, I remember we were talking on the phone a little bit yesterday as I was asking about your presentation, and um, another good story that I remember hearing is um, one of your points is is you, you stoke your own fire and, and to not take that easy route, and you're mentioning um, you you were an exchange student, then you came to the universities here um, in, in the U.S., and in order to get by, in order to get that degree, you had to be homeless for a while, and you said you were living on a meal, maybe two on a good day. Every, you know, on, on on average, and you know, living from one friend's place to the next to try to get by, um, and now um, you were able to overcome that, and now you're the founder of the Global Development Partners, which is an international consulting firm that helps organizations succeed in the global marketplace. Um, so I'm really, really glad that you were able to uh, speak at TEDx MSU again for our listeners. This is Jeff George. He was a presenter at TEDx MSU last weekend, and thank you so much for calling in and uh, talking to us tonight. Emily, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. All right. Thanks. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Smoking Helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. According to the Greater Lansing Convention and Visitors Bureau, Greater Lansing gets more than 4 million visitors annually, and Lansing's First Fridays hopes to intrigue MSU students to join the crowds. Impact reporter Anjana Schrader has more. There's only one Friday night where you can get your nails done, hair done, new threads, and check out some local art, and still have time to get a free ride to a downtown Lansing nightclub. First Fridays is a time when businesses offer deals and incentives on the first Friday of every month to bring visitors and citizens to Greater Lansing. Membership manager at the Greater Lansing Convention and Visitors Bureau, Jan Pfeiffer, is a part of the volunteer-based committee who worked to start Lansing First Fridays. The deals are really in, in all um, all of the communities. There's there's many businesses in East Lansing that have, um, you know, picked up on the first Fridays. And when we go and talk to a business to see if they do want to participate, it's really a, a win-win for the business because it costs them nothing. It costs the participants no transportation. Um, it's, it's really get out and enjoy your community because Lansing and Greater Lansing has a lot to offer. Over 100 businesses participate in Lansing First Fridays. Restaurants have food and drink specials, nail and hair salons offer services at a discount, and art galleries have extended hours. From the start of Lansing First Fridays in April of 2011, there have been noticeable bumps in business. T.J. Meisterheim is the manager at Tavern on the Square in downtown Lansing. She likes how First Fridays brings people to Lansing. Today we have 
had an event uh, called Green Drinks, and it was on our porch. And they also advertised that it happened to be First Friday. We probably had 70 people, well, maybe like 50 people through here. Not only for their event, but everybody knew that it was First Fridays, and everybody wanted to get in on some of that. So today was was a really great happy hour. And generally, our Fridays are pretty big, but today was just exceptionally, exceptionally yeah. great. But Meisterheim is not sure if First Fridays is bringing students to Lansing. We don't get too much, uh, too many MSU students down here for that. Although we do get them in the evening later, but for the happy hours, generally just the downtown crowd, probably like upper twenties and uh, to about upper thirties. MSU student Kelly Wall doesn't go to downtown Lansing for various reasons. I'm from Detroit, and I you know I'm a city person, so had a curiosity to go, but just taking the bus just kind of like hassle. Catching the one. The second reason, this Lansing is still new to me, so I don't want to get lost, and it's still kind of unfamiliar environment. And three. I don't know what Lansing, downtown Lansing has to offer you. Pfeiffer hopes that First Fridays will draw students beyond East Lansing with free transportation and deals as incentives. We're really hoping that, you know, for the MSU student population, that it kind of broadens their their. Um, horizons around Greater Lansing that it isn't just East Lansing, although that's an important, you know, part of of their world. But you know, there's things downtown, there's things in Old Town, and if they get the um, the you know free transportation and then the specials that the businesses offer, hopefully that will you know let them explore their community a little bit. This Friday is the next First Friday, a perfect opportunity to gather a group of friends for a fun adventure in downtown Lansing. For Impact News, I'm Anjana Schrader. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. NASA has been experiencing funding cuts for space explorations. Up next is a special feature by Ryan McKelly that explores the future of NASA space exploration. Start, two, one, booster ignition, and liftoff of the space shuttle Discovery, returning to the space station, paving the way It can be very difficult for us to imagine what lies in the great vastness of space, and yet it has captivated the human mind for centuries. Infinite possibilities lie amongst trillions of stars in their orbiting planets, silently waiting to be explored. The famous astronomer Carl Sagan states that somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known. Since its foundation, NASA has been at the forefront of human space exploration. They set the bar to the space race, leaving behind the first human footsteps in our nation's flag on the moon. NASA has always been seen as an inspiration for citizens of the nation to aspire to something greater than themselves and to develop a real passion for learning. But whether you've heard it or not, the government has canceled the funding to the famous space shuttle program. The program's end has brought about much uncertainty as to what the future of space exploration will look like. There has also been a lot of confusion as well as rumors about what really led to the program's end. By looking at the problem from all angles, one can gain a clearer understanding as to what has occurred. Here with me to help bring out the details is Megan Donahue. 
I work as an astrophysicist. My affiliation with NASA is a user of NASA facilities like the Hubble Space Telescope or the Chandra X-ray Observatory. Also, I've been on advisory boards to strategize what sorts of things they should do in the future. Now, NASA has really achieved some very profound accomplishments over its time. The space shuttle became one of the most successful programs NASA has had. Since its launch in 1972, the program harbored a fleet of five separate shuttles. Out of these five shuttles, both the Columbia and Challenger were lost in tragic accidents. But this did uh, not this occur until each uh, shuttle had made Gimbal? numerous successful Houston, missions. The shuttle's main purpose was to be used to bring humans into low Earth orbit to do research and launch or repair satellites. The shuttle was also reusable as it was able to land on a runway upon returning to Earth. So what factors contributed to the termination of the shuttle program? Given its history, it seems to have been working well. But when you really look at it, it comes down to a question of the program's age. The program was old, very expensive to maintain, and in order to have even the chance of having something to replace it, they had to shut down the shuttle program. Basically, the shuttles are handmade parts, and the technology in the shuttles are getting older and older and older. It's like yeah. you saying, I have to sell the old car before I can buy a new car. Taking a pause on bringing humans to space will allow NASA time to develop new technologies, stronger vehicles, and update its infrastructure. President Bush comments. Today we set a new course for America's space program. We will give NASA a new focus and vision for future exploration. We will build new ships to carry man forward into the universe, to gain a new foothold on the moon, and to prepare for new journeys to the worlds beyond our own. NASA receives its funding from the government, and so the actual decision made came from those in political power. Since the program officially came to an end while President Obama was in office, the finger is often pointed at him. But in reality, the decision to cancel the shuttle program was wrote up and signed by previous President George W. Bush. President Obama, in fact, prolonged the life of the program, allowing for an additional two missions before its end. Bush believed the program to be outdated and that it was too costly and inefficient to continue running. It was sort of a hard and cold decision. They don't, they don't have, um, they have money, but they don't have a ton of money. And, and uh, human space, space flight is really expensive. With the declining economy, it could be argued that the 200 billion taxpayer dollars spent each year was not worth the results. It may have had more resources if it wasn't a declining economy, but still, this phase out of the shuttle program was not sudden and unexpected. They planned to phase it out. On the other side of it, how fast was the replacement rocket going to happen? That was harder to predict. So I think the unpredictable thing was just how difficult it was to come up with replacement orbital transport. I think the economy is a factor, but not the factor in why the shuttle program shuts down. So while it's true that a better economy could have provided better conditions for NASA, it is not the main reason behind the problem. On the positive side, the program gave back to the community as well providing a strong market in Florida's economy and over 23,000 jobs that were lost due to the program's end. It does open up some funding that was going into maintenance of the fleet that can now go into developing the replacement. It means that for a while there, we don't have anything we can use, but there's the possibility now of developing a replacement that will be cheaper to operate, perhaps not so handcrafted, for example 
and will operate for another 20 years. Many are worried at the fact that American astronauts must now solely rely on Russian space programs to get into space. It seems to bring a Cold War chill up America's spine. 15 years ago, that would have been an untenable situation. No way would we have done that. If they have to get somebody into orbit, they can pay the Russians a pretty serious amount of money, but they can still get into orbit. While Americans may have to rely on the Russians to bring any humans into space, NASA is still able to bring satellites and other objects into low Earth orbit by other means. I think there's going to be increased activity from the private sector, definitely increased activity from the Chinese. NASA may find itself partnering with private sector or Chinese or the Europeans more and more to do bigger missions. President Obama gives us his opinion. Let's allow the private sector to get in so that they can send these low Earth orbit uh, vehicles while the government focuses on the big breakthroughs that uh, require much larger uh, investments and involve much greater risk. So it seems that America is still able to carry out basic space missions without the shuttle program, and it now has the opportunity to shift gears and seek out new innovations and technologies. When political leaders decided to cancel the program's funding, they took the future of space exploration into deep consideration. NASA has gained a substantial amount of research evidence from its program history, and now is moving in a forward direction to explore deep space. To get any farther than low Earth orbit, we need a big rocket. New fuels, more efficient rocketry, you know, even getting to the moon will take something bigger than, than the shuttle. The shuttle was only capable of delivering satellites to low Earth orbit. If we wanted to put something in a higher orbit, it had to be fitted out with its own rocket. If you want to move a person through the solar system, you might want to get them to low Earth orbit, continue building a larger spacecraft in low Earth orbit, and then launch from there where you need less of a rocket to escape. Looking towards the future, NASA scientists intend to focus their attention on creating a new method of space travel, one that is far superior to the shuttle, and has the potential to bring us to an asteroid or even Mars. Sending a person to Mars is going to be a really, really expensive endeavor. Saying that, well, it's going to be many years before we send people to Mars, someone listening to this program might be one of those people. The important thing to do now is educate the youth to become curious and innovative thinkers. They will be the ones to inherit the space program when it is ready to go beyond the imagination. I think there's a lot of opportunities out there for people who are willing to take risks and learn new stuff, try new things, and explore. And there's always going to be some kind of outlet for people who are willing to do that. The answers that are waiting to be found in the deepest corners of space can only be discovered by those who truly seek it. The sky is no longer the limit as we now have the potential to explore the final frontier. The commander of the Space Shuttle Discovery, Mark Kelly, shares his final comments with the nation. There's going to be a period of time where we're going to develop uh, our next generation of launch vehicles, and uh, it'll be a challenging transition, but I expect great things. I'd like to be optimistic about the chances of uh, an active and uh, really productive space program in the future. So. You're listening to Impact Exposure.
You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. The musical Les Miserables has been performing across the globe for almost three decades. The show is stopping in East Lansing this week at the Wharton Center. To talk about the production is Max Quinlan, who plays the role of Marius in the production. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So Les Mis has been the longest-running musical in the world. Why do you think it's been yeah. so successful? Um, well, I think that it's a lot of different elements that come together. The music, first off, is just incredible. I mean, it's some of the greatest music that's ever been written for musical theater. Uh, sweeping ballads, beautiful anthems uh, that people really seem to connect with. And also, I think the story is just so heartfelt, and there are a lot of different characters in the show that I think uh, people of all ages can identify with one of the characters and one of the storylines, which makes it just a very relatable piece for the audience. Speaking of the plot, can you tell us a little bit about the story itself um, of Les Mis? Yeah, I mean, the story uh, centers around the central character of the musical, whose name is uh, Jean Valjean, and he uh, starts the show as a criminal and he uh, was arrested, basically, for stealing a loaf of bread um, in order to save his sister's son. And he spends a lot of time in prison, and he's finally released. And upon being released from prison, he finds that the world isn't very welcoming to, um, you know, somebody who's just been in jail. And so he decides to uh, break his parole and change his name and kind of start his life over again. And he becomes a very successful man, and the story kind of... Uh, follows his life and introduces a bunch of different characters on the way. And his life is about, basically, um, he's decided to live his life for God and for what he believes that God would uh, want him to be doing with his life. And he um, raises a child that isn't his own, and uh, that's the child who my character actually ends up falling in love with, and there's a student revolution that's going on. So it's there's a whole lot of stuff um, but uh, it's it's very well done, and it's actually very clear when you come to see the show. There's just a lot of different uh, storylines that influence the entire musical, but uh, that's the central character, really. So can you tell me a little bit about your role of Marius? Sure. Um, he's uh, a revolutionary student. He is uh, fighting in the revolution uh, that's taking place at the time, and he is a student soldier. He's very smart. Um, and he's kind of a one-track mind kind of a guy. And then out of nowhere, he bumps into this girl and falls in love with her at first sight. And um, so he's kind of split and doesn't know if he should follow, uh, you know, his revolutionary spirit and uh, fight this war that he's been uh, seeing out with his other friends or if he should chase this girl that he's fallen for and he's... Um, so he's kind of like the romantic lead of the show, and uh, he ends up going through a lot of different stages. He starts the show uh, very naive and um, ends up, you know, experiencing a lot of loss and experiencing love and heartbreak, and um, he really has a full story in the show. Well, full disclosure, I want to let you know that <laughs> when I was in high school, I played the role of Eponine, which is the girl that you're speaking ah. of. <laughs> Well, there so, you go. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I was really excited when I knew that I was going to interview someone uh, who played Marius because I played the role of Eponine <laughs> back in high school, which was one of my favorite memories ever. Um, yeah, yeah, it's great. So how long have you been playing this role of Marius on this on this tour? Uh, I've been with the show for about six months now as Marius. Okay. And and what is that like being being on a tour? And, and how much time did you get to prep or rehearse before you went on tour? And how did you learn about your role and, and, and 
really get behind it uh, and understood it before you started performing? Yeah, uh, tour life is is very different. It's uh, it's very exciting because you get to, you know, see all these different parts of the country that you would never see and perform in all these different towns. And uh, you get to. It's nice because you get to experience how different cultures are in how they respond to the show. It's it's very different depending on the city that we're in. I think that we always get great response, but it's very. Um, you know, you you can tell a difference based on where you're at in the country. So it's it's very interesting. Um, I actually have been a part of the show for longer than just uh, when I was playing Marius. I was the understudy at the beginning of the tour mm. and then got bumped up. So I my rehearsal process was kind of um, was really I was prepared to do the role at any given time before taking over. And then um, once I was bumped up, I just became the regular. Uh, person for the role and um, yeah so we don't really get that much prep time uh, as far as the show I mean we uh, you know when we have our our opening night we get to the theater about two hours before we do a sound check we do um, a fight call which is where all the we go over all the fights uh, that that take place in the show slowly to make sure that they're as safe as possible and uh, and then we're then we're up and going so it's uh, it's a different venue and we have different crew guys and all kinds of new elements to the show uh, that make it what it is, but we don't get much rehearsal time. We just kind of uh, get going. And before you guys rerun on tour, did you get time to rehearse with one another, or were you just thrown in and first time you met was opening night or a situation like that, uh, or did you have time had before? about a three-month rehearsal process before going out on the road. Um, so, so, yes, there was a lot of rehearsals, um, a lot of discussions. Our, both of our directors... Um, are from from London, and they came over and uh, put the show together, and a uh, brand new cast, and we had all these associates, and Cameron McIntosh came towards the end, so uh, it was a, a lot of rehearsing, a lot of uh, a lot of tech goes into it when the production first starts out, but then once it's kind of set and moving along on the road, uh, things just go at a very rapid pace. And what would you say is your favorite scene in this whole show? Um, my favorite scene, uh, it changes a lot, to be quite honest, which is really nice. Um, I, I get to be in a lot of different scenes and have so many different moments, so it's, it's really nice that it's always refreshing to sometimes different scenes strike me at different times. Uh, recently, though, uh, the epilogue has actually been my favorite scene, which is the very end of the show, um, and mainly just because I've really, uh, we, we've had, um, a man that's been playing Jean Valjean, his name is uh, J. Mark McVeigh, and uh, he's just incredible, and I've really enjoyed watching him in the last scene. I don't really do that much in the scene. I just kind of am there to support uh, my now wife, Cosette, in the scene. Uh, so I'm just there, and uh, it's a beautiful thing to watch every single night, so I love doing it. Now that's that final march when everyone's on stage kind of walking forward at the very yeah, end of the yeah, show. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, As, as we kind of discussed before, um, the kind of the difference between, or just the, the challenges of being on a, on a 
tour versus maybe being in a venue. I'm curious, what would you say are, if there's any benefits or are there downsides to touring versus having having a home base in, let's say, New York City on Broadway? Yeah, I mean, it's very it's 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 very different. Um, I think that there are positives and negatives to to touring. Um, you know, uh, oddly enough, you can. Um, you know, you get to. I think I feel like you get to experience a lot more in the variety of crowds that you get to see when you're on tour. Mm. Uh, just because you know, when you're doing a show in New York, it's a lot of it's a lot of tourists usually, and it can be a, a very mishmash of people that are coming to see the show. Whereas when we come to you know some place like East Lansing, it's 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 mainly people that are from the area that are from very close to the area, so. It's a uh, it's an interesting experience to just feel what that society takes on when when this story is presented to them, um, and so I think that that's one of the benefits. I think that you know having a home base is, is in you know let's say a New York show is also an amazing thing because you know you get to have your house, you get to have your friends, and you, kind of your life uh, that is in New York rather than you know our life on tour. We're seeing the same people every day. We're touring with the same cast. We, you know, we eat together. We sleep together. We're in the same hotels. We're on the, you know, on the road. We work together. So it's just, it's a lot of the same people, and you become a family out on the road, which is a bonding experience that I think with a cast on tour versus in New York, you just don't get. There's nothing that compares to how much time we spend together on the road, and you get to know everybody on this deeper level, and I think you ever would in a stationary company. Um, so it's it's really exciting, and, and it can be exhausting, but it can also be extremely thrilling. And do you think that that makes your performance better as you, you're talking about this bond that you can create with people because you're traveling together and you don't have this comfort of your own home that you can go back to, but you're constantly interacting with people? Yeah, I mean, we we care so deeply for each other on the road, and, and we really are like a family out here. So I think that it just elevates the performance that much more. And and we, uh, you know, we, we don't really have as many other people outside of our, of our circle to kind of get us going. You know, when we're, when we're down or we don't, you know, we're not feeling the best, we have each other to turn to. So I feel like it really creates a strong bond and a really special experience for the audience to see that kind of a cast who has such a close uh, relationship with one another. And how long are you on tour for? Total. Uh, well, the tour right now is, I believe, scheduled through, uh, I want to say, up until about the holidays of uh, next year. Um, I personally am, am uh, contracted through uh, the beginning of December right now, so so for a little while. Yeah. Wow, wow. And what, is your, what does daily life usually entail? You have performances at night, but then what do you do during the day? Yeah, we have performances at night. Um, a lot of times we have rehearsals during the day. Um, you know, we're, we're, we have uh, music brush-ups with the entire company a lot of times, or we have um, different, you know, if we have different people that are coming into the show, because what you experience a lot with a long-running show is that people are, you know, constantly coming in and out, um, you know, and the cast is constantly changing. So we're putting people in a lot of times, and so... A rehearsal is obviously something that uh, can fill the day, but that's also one of the great things about touring. It's it, you know it's a it's an interesting thing doing theater because we we're basically we work at night and it's you know we're our our end of the workday comes down at 11 p.m. 
and uh, and then you know we're up. So I mean, it's a it's a very different lifestyle. I mean, we're usually going to bed around like two or three in the morning, and then you know we we start our days. And a lot of times, it's really nice to be able to get out and be a little touristy and you get to see all these different things. Like we just came from Boston. I got to go to the cheers bar and like explore all the different areas and go to the Sam Adams brewery and like all that kind of stuff, which is so much fun and, and some and experiences that you wouldn't normally get to do, you know, obviously if you don't have a job that's kind of like this, that travels all over the place. So, you know, we fill our days with all kinds of different stuff. Um, but you know, a big thing on tour that's, that's difficult and something that you have to concentrate on is staying healthy because, you know, you're traveling a lot and usually our day off, especially if we're, if we're staying in one place for a week and then the next week we're at another place, our day off is spent traveling. So that means we're spending the day in the airport or on a bus and, uh, and you go to a new town and there's all these new allergies in the air and all that kind of stuff. So you have to really stay healthy, you know, taking your vitamins, drinking your water, all that kind of stuff, and looking out for yourself as much as possible because you want to present the best product to every single crowd and you want to put your best foot forward and have the show represented um, in the way you know it can be. So it's um, it's an interesting balance that you have to go through, and it's a lot of fun and very challenging, and, and we're just hoping that the audiences all across the place, uh, all across the country, are enjoying the same show every night. Well, for those that are maybe just tuning in, I'm on the phone with Max Quinlan. He plays the role of Marius in the U.S. tour of Les Miserables. And uh, I have one more final question for you. I'm, I'm curious, what is your favorite song in this whole show? I, I know I'm a huge fan of so many songs in, in this show. Um, they have yeah. a, some great hits. So I'm it's, curious, what is your favorite? Uh, it's, it's hard to pick. You know, it, it really, as you said, it's got a lot of amazing songs. Um, I think that my favorite song is uh, probably I, I love Bring Them Home. I just think it's one of the most beautiful songs written for musical theater and to hear it sung every night. And, you know, the song is actually kind of sung to me when I'm sleeping. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a beautiful song to hear every single night. And I think the audience just loves it. All right. Well, Musical Les Mis has been performed across the globe for almost three decades. And again, the show is stopping here in East Lansing at the Wharton Center this week. And on the phone was Max Quinlan, who played the role of Marius. Thank you so much for calling in tonight. Of course. Thank you for having me. Let him be. Let him live. If I die. You're listening to Impact Exposure on You 
tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. We have reached the final minutes of the show, and that means it's time for the Michigan Storytelling segment. This week features MSU student Chris Huffman and his audio drama called Summer Serial Killer. Tonight on Chris Huffman's Mystery Theater, we follow a murder witness on his quest for justice in the mystery of the serial killer. It was another late Thursday night at the office. I was trying to get ahead to make for an easy Friday. The wife and kids wanted to take one last trip to the cottage that weekend before the summer ended. Five o'clock came around and everyone left but me. Then six o'clock passed, seven o'clock. By the time I was ready to go, the sun had already disappeared. I contemplated calling a cab. I hate the rain. But I figured saving a few extra bucks before the weekend's vacation couldn't hurt. If I had known what kind of mess was in store for me, I would have called that cab for sure. I was 20 minutes into my walk and halfway home when a fight caught my attention. There were two homeless men in the alley to my right. I stopped for a moment as one man was thrown to the ground, and then... froze. I didn't know what to do. Do I run? Do I call the police? Do I just pretend like I didn't notice? Well, of course, I noticed. I had to do something. In the midst of my panic, the man looked up at me. I was just standing there, looking at him. I took off. He was running after me. I turned right at the next block and then quickly ducked down by some trash cans outside someone's door. The rain was really coming down at that point. I sat there, silent. I was pretty sure he wouldn't be able to see me. By this point, with all of the clouds, it was really dark. He rounded the corner and slowed down to a walk. I could see him looking around for what direction I might have gone. Once he got far enough away, I crawled out from my hiding spot and headed back home. The family was all asleep by the time I got back. I called the police before I went to bed. Operator. Give me the police. Just a moment, please. Hello. I'd like to report a murder. police told me to come into the station the next morning. They had picked up a couple of goons and they were going to see if I could identify one of them as the guy I saw last night. The secretary brought at the counter pointed towards a room at the end of the hall. A detective there introduced himself to me. Hi, I'm Detective Payne. Thanks for coming in and doing this. No problem. Okay, what we're going to do is line these guys up in the next room and you can let us know if any of them is the one that you saw last night. And don't worry, this is a one-way mirror. No one will be able to see you. I was nervous. It was dark when I saw him. He could look like anyone. I wouldn't be able to pick him out of a bunch. Okay, bring him in. They started filing in. Mostly of them really didn't look that dangerous. But then, he came in. It was him for sure. The fifth one in. 
He was wearing that black overcoat I had noticed the night before. So what do you think about... Number five. That's him. You're sure? I'm positive. Okay, if you're sure, thanks for your help. I can show you to the door. I knew I had gotten him for sure. I really didn't think I had gotten that good of a good look at him, but as soon as I saw him, I knew that was the perp. But then I started thinking. If I got a good enough look at him, did he see me? Did he know who I was? My worries went away when I got a call from the police a few weeks later. The man was found guilty of five separate murders and had been sent to jail. Our family didn't end up being able to go to our cottage that weekend. We spent the weekend at home, mainly gathering around our new radio. Look out for a man that escaped from a nearby jail. Police said that the escape happened sometime last night and that they are doing everything they can to find the fugitive. That's all for news right now. Stay tuned for Chris Huffman's Mystery Radio Show coming up next. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.